Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we're joined by Dr. Anna Meyer, who is an assistant professor in the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Nottingham. Anna, just to begin with, uh, an easy one, I guess. Uh, What is terrorism? Oh, wow. So I don't think that's an easy question at all. And I think the debate among people who study and work on terrorism, the fact that we're still having a debate, shows that that's not an easy question. And I think a lot of folks would say, because the term has become so politicized, there isn't really a quote unquote objective definition of it. And I don't think that's quite true. Because what is actually happening, mostly when state actors use the term terrorism, is that they're defining the boundaries of legitimate and illegitimate political contention. And because these are state actors doing this, that ends up happening along the lines of historically racialized, colonized, etc. status quos. And so even as we see the term terrorism starting to be applied to far-right actors, in some cases at least, that's not really challenging fundamentally what the term has been used for, which is to place largely leftist, anti-capitalist actors of color in a box uh, against which we can throw whatever tools we have because that type of resistance, violent or otherwise, fundamentally challenges existing power structures in Western global North states. Anna, apart from the use of the term and the concept of terrorism to designate legitimate or illegitimate actors, it also seems to have, there's a power attached to the term. How do you explain it? What, what, why do you think terrorism has such effect? In so far like, as when we apply the term that has power? Yeah, I mean, terrorism is understood to be bad. Yes. Um, it's not something that anyone wants to be described as uh, having committed. And yet in another reading, it's, it's I guess, describes a, a form of uh, acting upon the world, the use of violence that is otherwise committed by all sorts of different uh, political actors. In the popular mind, I suppose, if something is designated as being terrorist, it's delegitimated. And I'm wondering, you know, perhaps you could explore the uh, origins of the term, how it's been deployed, and what your own research has said about its political effects upon, in terms of its uh, use to delegitimate political actors. Oh, absolutely. So the term terrorism arises from the French Revolution and was originally used in sort of a positive sense, as a way of understanding what the French revolutionary state would do to actors who would challenge it and sort of putting power back in the hands of the people. That is very quickly reversed. And the use of the term terrorism throughout the 19th century and well into the 20th century 
becomes a term that is used against actors who are challenging the state. And, and so because of obviously the state's interest in its own survival, we have this category of violence that gets applied to people and it becomes sort of the all holds bar, no holds barred, complete carte blanche. We can do whatever we want to actors that are put in this box. And we, the state needs something like that as norms around the use of state force start to change. And as it becomes less and less acceptable to simply kill your own civilians, we need a category that puts that back in and terrorism, especially uh, after 9-11 really serves that purpose. It allow it stokes feelings of fear and anxiety and really existential threat for folks who don't maybe know much about what these actors want or what they're doing. And that is very easily expanded to other actors. Um, and this is something that I see a lot in the work that I do. So the majority of the work that I do involves talking to bureaucrats, policymakers, people with a hand in what we might call counterterrorism or counterextremism policy, mostly in Germany and the United States. And what these people will often tell me is that while there are legal boundaries around what we can and can't call terrorism from a very sort of procedural sense, at the same time, discursively, how the term gets used really goes to show that there are racial, colonial, et cetera, biases behind it. And what we're actually doing is reinforcing racial structures that show up in other areas of life as well and drawing on those to say that any potential resistance, any sort of anti-capitalist, um, anti-democratic, anti-neoliberal sort of viewpoints that might be used to advocate for power for these marginalized communities is not valid, <laughs> is, is not legitimate, and really shutting down conversations that if we were to seriously have them would draw some scrutiny to how Western states today are organized and who they exist to serve. Earlier this year, you published Terror as Justice, Justice as Terror, Counterterrorism and Anti-Black Racism in the United States. Could you tell us a little bit about what you found when you looked into uh, US domestic counterterrorism policy and black liberation movements? So in the US and worldwide, there's a tendency to equate counterterrorism among people who take critical views of it with Islamophobic practices. And that is absolutely true. The damage that has been done to Muslim communities in the name of counterterrorism and counterextremism can't be overstated. And in the US context, a lot of the mechanisms that the state has through policing apparatuses, through what came to be known as joint terrorism task forces, which are partnerships between the FBI and other intelligence agencies and local police forces for dealing with terrorism, that comes out of resistance to Black liberation movements back in the 1960s and 1970s. And what I found in doing this work, and this is drawing on decades and decades of work by Black activists and people on the ground, is that much of the infrastructure that we have nowadays for dealing with mostly, unfortunately, Muslim communities comes out of this era of really heavily policing Black communities and really scrutinizing Black liberation. And you see in discourses from, for example, the New York Police Department and the White House even during this time, this tension that's coming up between, do we call these people rebels, insurgents, whatever, or do we call them terrorists? And what are the politics of doing that? And over time, it becomes very clear that the terrorist label gets applied and that becomes justification for using really brutal and outrageous methods against 
Black liberation actors. In discussing these issues, uh, often the word racism is a you know a bit of a, a boogeyman that people don't like to, <laughs> to mention. It. <laughs> what do you think accounts for uh, the nervousness around describing you know racist things as racist? Ooh, so I think there are two things happening here. One, the majority of people having what we might consider mainstream conversations about what is terrorism, what's extremism, what do we do about those things are white people. And white people are not socialized or trained to talk about racism because doing so implicates themselves as part of broader white communities within structures that encourage racism, even if they themselves might not be racist or might be trying really hard not to be racist. So that's one thing. The other thing is in North America and Europe especially, the equi- the term racism is equated with slavery, with Jim Crow, in some cases with the Holocaust and the Nazi regime, and those are absolutely racist things. But by sort of exceptionalizing them and saying this is the pinnacle of racism, what often happens is anything that is not quite at that level that gets called racist is viewed as some as sort of I'm not sure what the right word is, but decreasing the solemnness and importance of those really awful events, sort of like how dare you put an act of street violence and the Holocaust in the same breath by calling both racist. Those are not the same thing. And that's not entirely incorrect, but they are certainly part of the same spectrum of discrimination and hatred against people of color that is enabled by living in a structurally white supremacist society. And even in putting forward that formulation, I can expect that people will, some people at least, will be uncomfortable with that because, again, the terms racism, the term white supremacy, those are so equated with the most awful things to suggest that they might be more every day makes people uncomfortable. Uh, you also write in the, the paper the, the curious case of uh, Asata Shakur, who was added to the FBI's uh, most wanted terrorist list in 2013. Uh, 40 years after uh, she was allegedly involved in the murder of a police officer. Can you tell us a little bit about that case and why it was significant? So Asada Shakur was a member of the Black Liberation Army, which is a less well-known and more radical offshoot of the Black Panthers. And they were involved in a number of direct action um, acts of violence during the mostly the 1970s. And in the um, in the 1980s, uh, Asada Shakur was arrested for allegedly killing a state trooper in New Jersey. All forensic evidence suggests that she did not do this. She has denied it. There is really no case to be made for her as actually having done this. She was put in prison. She was broken out. And she's been a fugitive in Cuba ever since. And has become something of a symbol and also a, a leading figure in Black liberation movements in the U.S. to this day. In... I believe it was 2013, um, 2012, 2013, she was added back to the FBI's most wanted terrorist list, um, which is actually a pretty short list. There aren't that many people on it. And she's the first woman and she's a black woman. And to this day is only one of two women and the only black woman on the list. And most other people on the list are associated with Islamist militant groups. And I'm not saying the they all necessarily deserve to be on this list either, but it was quite striking that why is this woman who is at this point quite elderly, has not done anything violent in a very long time, why is she on this list? And the way that I sort of may have made sense of this and the way that other um, activists and such have made sense of this is twofold. One, 
because she is a Black woman, what the U.S. is doing is drawing on histories of racialized minorities as existing outside of the law, as their political demands not being valid, as groups that should be very submissive. And when they're not, that is viewed as an existential threat to the state. And so at a pretty pivotal time in U.S. counterterrorism, counter-extremism discourse, Asada is brought in. And like this is what threatening political contention looks like in the 21st century. It looks like a left-wing Black woman within the U.S. And that is, I think, is a very powerful statement for the second reason. At the same time, the Black Lives Matter movement in just a few years is going to really take off. And this listing of Asada happens around the same time as the murder of Trayvon Martin, which really kickstarts these conversations in the mainstream about police brutality against Black people in the United States. And so at a time when the left and some more mainstream audiences are starting to really question the right of police actors to go after these communities with impunity, with violence. The state brings up this image of a woman who in many Black liberation circles is still held up as a really important figure. And a lot of people still draw on her work and her writing and saying, no, 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 this person is a terrorist in line with a number of other people that we also consider terrorists. And Therefore, these movements that are drawing on issues that Black liberation movements have been working on for decades and decades and decades about around police brutality and carcerality, what's actually happening here is that those movements are associated with this person we now call a terrorist. So they might also be terrorists. That serves to, again, delegitimate them. And more recently, Anna, we've also seen another uh, incident which might also be considered somewhat exceptional, and that's the designation of the Russian imperial movement as terrorist by the United States uh, State Department. What does that tell us about terrorism and, I guess, uh, who qualifies as uh, being one or being a terrorist? It tells us very little, at least if we're interested in sort of emancipatory social justice kinds of goals in this area. So for those who might not be aware, in 2020. One, yes, uh, or 2020. I'm sorry that my brain is not working on the years. Um, but very recently, the US designated the Russian Imperial Movement, which is a Russian ultranationalist organization, as a terrorist group. And this was the first time that the US had done this for any group that might be considered far right, white supremacist, under any mechanism. The US has a number of mechanisms for designating actors as terrorists. And this invokes things like sanctions, asset freezes, criminalization of membership in some cases those kinds of things. And it was presented as this really significant maneuver, especially because it happened under the Trump administration, which infamously doesn't care that much about um, white supremacist violence um, and white supremacist ideology, at least not from a condemnatory position. But what is, I think is actually going on here is a response to public pressure that aims to pacify voices that are saying we need to do something about white supremacist violence without actually doing anything. Um, so the Russian imperial movement does not operate in the United States beyond a few recruitment initiatives here and there. It is not beneficially linked to any actual attacks. Like that's not what it does. It mainly engages in paramilitary training. And so in choosing an organization that is not really active in the U.S., is not a household name, is not involved in any high profile acts of violence, what the U.S. can say is, look, we're going after a white supremacist group. We're starting to take this seriously without having to really invest very many resources in doing so, and without having to do any sort of counterterrorism, counter-extremism work on U.S. soil itself. Um, 
with respect to white supremacist violence. Um, so actually, a, a former State Department official whom I interviewed about this um, sort of described it as extending a, a fig leaf, sort of, of making it seem like we're doing something against white supremacist violence, but actually covering up and not covering up very well the fact that the state is not actually interested in taking serious action against these groups. If you were the person who'd made that decision, though, you'd probably be feeling pretty good about having chosen them and not just throwing the dart at the board and pick the Azov Battalion instead, which could have <laughs> been a little bit awkward not too long afterwards. That's Oh, absolutely. That's, that's probably true. I mean, there are certainly geopolitical components to this. In Australia, we've we've recently uh, in our state here in Victoria, we've recently had an inquiry into the the rise of right wing extremism. One of the questions asked at that was, "Are CVE programs effective, and can we even judge how effective a CVE program is?" I was wondering uh, what your thoughts were on CVE, and perhaps you could explain to the the listeners what CVE is and is supposed to be. So CVE stands for Countering Violent Extremism. It is an approach to dealing with actors we might call terrorist or extremist that aims to de-radicalize individuals who might be prone to joining groups the state deems terrorist or extremist or to help people exit those kinds of organizations. And it tends to do that by partnering with civil society actors, local community actors, um, religious leaders, sometimes in programs that are designed to and using like state language here to properly re-educate people to be productive members of society and not to have extremist beliefs. These programs have existed since the 1990s in Europe and more recently in North America and Australia, New Zealand. So the question of efficacy is an important one because especially with increased attention to far right violence, there has been more and more money poured into these kinds of programs and we don't have a lot of research or understanding about how effective they are, in part because it's really hard to assess how many instances of violence, um, people joining these extremist groups, um, engaging in attacks, how many things would have happened in the absence of these programs without them versus with them. Like It's really hard to observe the counterfactual um, in those cases. We can't like go back and, and rewrite history in that way. So it's really hard to judge efficacy. But I also think in the efficacy question, there's embedded a normative assumption of it is a normatively good thing to change people's ideologies away from certain things. And I think when we question that assumption, we have to really underscore who is deciding what is and is not acceptable. And I will be quite open about my own biases, like as a leftist, and I don't think it's bad to have biases, we all have them. Uh, as a leftist, I am less concerned about people being turned away from far-right ideology as opposed to some other ideologies that the CVE programs have been used to target. At the same time, I think that it's really concerning when we're looking at programs that are designed to effectively like, rewrite how people think about and relate to their position as citizens within a polity and what they think political action is supposed to look like. A good example of this is in the UK, actually, with a program that's called Prevent, which is a broad umbrella for a number of initiatives that the UK government undertakes in the name of CDE. And what Prevent aims to do is to re-educate people about what are called fundamental British values, which in a nutshell are relatively neoliberal, democratic, and in some cases, nationalist British values. And research has actually shown that when you teach 
British school children about fundamental British values in the context of terrorism or extremism as somewhat of an antidote to that, it actually increases levels of nationalism and racism among some white male British school children. And so whenever we're dealing with essentially rewriting people's ideologies, I think we have to be very careful about what the ideal ideology is that we're trying to promote and whether that sort of ideological uniformity is actually something that we might want in a society. That's good job security for the CVE practitioner, though. <laughs> oh, oh, very true, yes. <laughs> and in speaking about countering violent extremism, it seems to be the case like counterterrorism that there is considerable government and private investment in the sector. So I guess what do you think are the responsibilities of scholars when engaging in this field? And what do you think are some of the, I guess, best approaches that might be taken in this domain, and also in terms of researching uh, things like uh, extremism, but fascism, the far right, and um, contentious political ideologies generally? Ooh, this is a good question. And I think it's especially important given that the majority of folks working in this area are white, and that's a problem whether you're studying Islamist or Islamist extremist violence or like Black liberation movements, um, because white people are trained to see those as less valid, as other, as less important, or whether you're studying the far right, where most of the actors are white, and there you get into issues of, am I as a white person trained to see maybe not the most extreme versions of racism and white supremacy as a problem, but the lesser versions that enable those more extreme versions to exist in the first place. And I think you really see a lack of reflexivity among some folks whenever people of color come out and criticize CBE industries. There's always inevitably some white male academic who will come in and go, but just you wait, like you don't understand what's going on here. How dare you insult our very important work? We have good intentions. And I get hung up on the, the good intentions piece, um, because if your good intention is to sort of unquestioningly advance the goals of the status quo that dis- considerably disprivileges people of color, queer people, women, so on and so forth, then I'm not sure what you're really working towards here. Like The sort of desire to hold up such a status quo is deeply unappealing to me. And it's something that I think a lot of academics need to question more and perhaps would question more if they engaged with more work in this space that is not necessarily from other white academics, but comes from activists on the ground, comes from deep histories of Black political thought, um, of Muslims reacting to their own racialization um, and discrimination against them during this period, and reading those sorts of personal accounts and really deep, interesting reflections on what is actually happening here. And the recognition that those perspectives are just as legitimate, just as important and taking a sort of target victim-centered approach that is rooted in the communities that are most likely to be victimized, both by what we might call extremist violence, and also by the policies that in return are being done against that extremist violence. And if we really center those issues, if we're interested in actually protecting something that we might call public safety or public security, then that produces a very different set of outcomes and a very different sort of approach to how we deal with extremism. CVE is often called, or there's a view that it's needed that we have what's called a whole of society approach where faith leaders, community organizations, schools, healthcare providers, et cetera, are all involved in this goal of combating extremism. 
And I think if we took more of a victim target-centered approach, what we'd actually see is healthcare workers, educational organizations, faith leaders, community organizations working together to create a more just and equitable society, which is a very different project, unfortunately, than CVE programs are targeted at. Yeah, no job security in that one. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. (laughs) And uh, across Australia, I think this year, almost every jurisdiction now has a ban on the swastika. Uh, You've done fieldwork talking to bureaucrats in this area, uh, in Germany in particular, where the Nazi swastika has obviously been banned for some time. Have those bans been effective? I don't think they're effective in Germany. Uh, and so I would doubt that they would be effective elsewhere. Again, the question here of what does it mean to be effective? Um, if the goal is to remove swastikas from public spaces, then maybe on the margins that might be effective. If the goal is to actually discourage the organizing of far-right organizations to sort of remove the impetus that makes far-right organizations attractive in the first place, then A, punitive measures are not going to do that. And swastika bans are... a drop in the bucket in that regard. I think you only have to look at Germany, a country that has banned Nazi iconography for decades, and look at the surge in the alternative for Germany, the far right party, um, and the number of neo-Nazi protests that continue to happen in the country, the number of neo-Nazis that continue to be found in the police, in the military, in intelligence agencies. And you look at that and you say, okay, I don't think a swastika ban has has done much here. Again, if the end goal is to decrease the amount of white supremacist activity in society. Again, it's sort of like a fig leaf. It's an idea that is not inherently bad, but by itself is not getting at the root causes of why a swastika might be appealing to some people in the first place and why the ideology associated with that might be appealing to somebody in the first place. So I'm not optimistic about any efforts in Australia there. In addition to swastika bans in Australia, governments in Canada and uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, have prescribed the Proud Boys as a terrorist organisation, which um, seems to be having some effect on their activities. They also played um, a key role in the January 6 events in the United States. What do you think is the best approach in terms of understanding groups like the Proud Boys and developing responses to them on the part of Uh, the general public, if not the state? Ooh, that's a big question. In terms of understanding where groups like the Proud Boys are coming from, why they're appealing at this particular time in history, I think in the US context especially, which is where the Proud Boys comes from, you can't ignore the reaction to the election of Barack Obama. Um, And Barack Obama is obviously a very sort of neoliberal figure, um, not particularly leftist in any way. However, I think we have to understand these reactions he these reactions, the ascendancy of a lot of movements, the United the Right rally in Charlottesville and the, and the number of organizations that came out of that, the election of Trump, as a reaction to a Black person ascending to the highest office in the US, regardless of what his personal politics were, a Black person transcending accepted social relations in the US in an extremely public and powerful way in, caused this enormous reactionary movement that, of course, has deeper roots in the United States going back to the founding of the country and the Ku Klux Klan and all of the white power organizing that occurred during and after the Vietnam War um, and into the 1990s. Like There are strong foundations here that enabled this to happen because, again, we're talking about a country founded on structural white supremacy. But as that structural white supremacy has in some ways been challenged and in a very public way by the election of Obama you see an extreme reactionary swing to the right. 
by groups that feel disadvantaged. This is happening around the same time as things like the Me Too movement, as um, the the granting of same-sex marriage rights um, to couples in the United States. And those populations of straight, white, cisgender, heterosexual men, for the most part, and some women as well, look at these developments and go, my unquestioned power is being encroached upon and I feel threatened. I'm going to react to that. And this creates an opening for people with more extreme ideologies, people who are more explicitly neo-Nazi, et cetera, to come in and say, well, our positions are actually not that far apart. We both feel that our communities have been disadvantaged by all of these people of color, queer people, et cetera, getting rights. We just have more extreme solutions to that. In terms of how you then deal with those sorts of reactionary far-right movements, that's a, that's a big question that involves deep systemic structural changes in places like Canada and the United States and New Zealand that I frankly don't think any government is actually very interested in because it would require white people giving up a considerable amount of unquestioned power and at the very least sharing that um, with, with other racialized groups. And I think the reactionary sort of politics in response to Obama in the United States really show that there's not much incentive to do that. Um, and I am unfortunately very pessimistic about possibilities here. If there's any optimism, it's coming from grassroots activism, again, in targeted victimized communities. It has very, very deep roots. And that is focusing on community-based solutions at the local level um, that are about encouraging security and safety for all members of communities, not just those who have been historically privileged. But that's a very slow, bottom-up kind of approach to things that are very, very scary at the national, international level. And I worry that the pace of that bottom-up change is not going to be matched by anything from the top. I think perhaps a complete overhaul of the settler colonial carceral state might be a bit of a a mountain to climb. Perhaps a... Just just a small one, yeah. (laughs) Perhaps less insurmountable, though, would be a, a... fixing of the critical terrorism studies field. Uh, what do you think needs to be done to improve CTS? Do we need critical, critical terrorism studies studies? <laughs> uh, we might just need like critical period terrorism studies in the first place. So CTS, the sort of critical, somewhat leftist approach and reaction to sort of more mainstream work on terrorism and counterterrorism in the aftermath of 9-11 has produced a lot of really interesting, important work, especially from Muslim scholars in that space. In the article that we talked about earlier, one thing that I argue is a need for more transnational collaboration between people who are working on Black liberation movements in North America and Islamophobic reactionary forces in, in governments in Europe, um, because these are all, in my mind, part of the same story. And even within critical circles in the UK, in Europe, we're getting more comfortable talking about Islamophobia, but we're still pretty uncomfortable talking about racism and white supremacy as not just things that the terrorists and extremists do, but things that we ourselves might do sometimes. I mean, this is going to sound sort of crass, but white people are white people everywhere, (laughs) regardless of how critical they would like to be. And the degree of reflexivity in the field is not fantastic. I mean, every time that decently well-positioned woman or a person of color publishes something relatively significant that criticizes counterterrorism, countering violent extremism, or that argues that we need to take the far right more seriously, inevitably some white man will appear, sometimes a white woman will appear and go, 
you're blowing this out of proportion. Um, this is not as serious as you think it is. And I just really question the motivations for why someone would say that, even if they personally believe it to be true. And again, I think it's people who are not straight, white, cisgender, heterosexual men encroaching upon those people's power in the field and their ability to decide what academic research on this topic looks like. And so I would like to come up with a slightly more professional recommendation than saying that white people and especially white men should sit down and be quiet for a bit. And I would include myself in that. But also thinking about where our efforts are best able to be used in these fields. Um, and the one reason that I study white supremacist violence and not other kinds of what we might call extremist, etc., violence is because white policymakers will talk to me as an equal. And I have access to spaces that people of color simply don't, or at least not in the same way. And that's a place where I feel like I can actually use my privilege for good, maybe. But it's something I think about a lot. And so I would encourage people who are doing work in this space and who don't belong to marginalized identities to ask themselves similar questions of but where can I use my privilege for good? And if my interest in this space is not to do good, not to actually protect the security of these marginalized communities, then why am I here? That that would be a question that I would pose to folks. Well, Anna, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to find you online, you are on Twitter at Anna Meyer PS, that's M-E-I-E-R. Or of course, people can find your website, AnnaMeyer.net, where you have a lot of your research listed. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll be back next week. See you then. Turn off the TV. It's time to settle down. And I've been ignoring newspapers. I've been staring at the ground. Because I'm waking up from nightmares. Whenever I look around, I see what's back here in a situation of which you can't get out. Oh, yeah, the dreams I mentioned earlier are in all their own ways. Watching vessels let themselves into shiny window beds.
Hi, my name is Bunjalini, also known as Robbie Thought. I want to invite you to the 2022 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday the 10th of November at Arnie Elmer Thorpe's Gathering Place, Dadi Munwaro, 546 to 550 High Street, Preston. There will be a panel discussion on First Nations incarceration and justice, some live music with Amos Roach and free copies of this year's Beyond the Bars CD. Thursday the 10th of November, Arnie Almathorpe's Gathering Place, Daddy Munmaru, 6 to 8pm. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyond the bars.